0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Energy Explored. This podcast covers the challenges of achieving a carbon neutral global economy, cutting emissions of gases and pollutants, and setting up new energy systems. Join Reed Smith lawyers and guest speakers as they shed light on the most important trends in emissions control and new fuels. Tune in as we follow the ever evolving journey through the transition of energy.
1: Hello, welcome back to Energy Explored, a series that covers issues and challenges around the important and dynamic topic of carbon neutral global economy and everything to do with that. Today, uh, I'm delighted to be joined by two excellent speakers, and I'll introduce those in a moment. My name is Sachin Karah, I'm the Managing Partner of Readsmith's Middle East offices, and it's my pleasure to host Mayan Ekong and Simone Uh Simone is a partner based in Reed Smith's London office. She advises banks and hedge funds, ut- uh, utilities, energy companies and commodity companies in a variety of transactional and cross-border regulatory and compliance issues and matters within the energy sector. And if that wasn't enough, Simone is ranked as a rising star in Legal 500. Anne Mayan, she is an international commercial lawyer with expertise in the energy and marine markets. She's currently the General Counsel of Gurin Energy, a pan-Asian renewables company. And she was formerly Regional Head of Legal at the International Energy and Marine Technology Group, Wastila. Now, Mayan is a climate and energy transition enthusiast and holds various advisory and board positions in the energy sector. So, Simone and Mayan, a very warm welcome to you both. Today, we're going to traverse a wide range of key issues in this continuing focus upon energy transition. I appreciate, as a podcast, we only have a limited amount of time, probably won't do justice to all that we would like to discuss. But nevertheless, we're going to tackle a few key areas. We want to uh, look in particular at the growing size of the hydrogen market. We'll also go back a bit and look at how COVID and indeed the current Ukrainian conflict has impacted the focus upon an energy transition. And we'd also like to discuss how approaches to ESG, environmental, social and corporate governance, have intersected and aligned with the transition to renewables. So a lot to get through. And as I say, I've got uh, Mayan and Simone as the excellent contributors to today. Simone, I'm going to start with you, if I may, and, and, and sort of go back to basics, if I can, and, and just ask you to define for the audience, in its simplest possible form, what you would regard as energy transition, definitionally, so that can sort of form the basis upon how we go forward in this session.
2: Sure. Thank you very much, Sachin, and hello, everyone. I think in its simplest form... I would classify the energy transition as a move away from the global reliance on fossil fuels and the move towards newer, cleaner fuels. So we're looking at things like hydrogen, as you've already mentioned, solar, wind. And within that is the development of new technologies to ensure that these forms of energy are more reliable they are secure. And we're generally moving to an environment now where we don't want to be dependent on things like oil and coal. The EU had a plan which was fit for 55 which was the overall strategy to reduce net greenhouse gases by at least 55% by 2030 when you're looking at 1990 levels. So I would say in its broadest terms, that in a nutshell is the energy transition in my eyes.
1: Thanks, Simone. And can I just keep you there for for a second? And I want you perhaps to just bring us into a bit of focus on the hydrogen part of the energy transition equation. I mean, how important are hydrogen projects now, uh, where you sit in the United Kingdom, where I sit in the Middle East? And, and 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 how significant is the hydrogen project portfolio, if I can put it that way?
2: Sure, absolutely. So looking first at the UK we have a number of hydrogen assets at varying stages of development. So we have assets in the Liverpool region, Scotland, Wales, Tees Valley, Humber, Northern Ireland. And I think that diversity of geography in the UK alone, um, where we have that focus on hydrogen assets, demonstrates the UK government's commitment to the development of the hydrogen strategy. Um, Sachin, you will know very well that the UAE has had a rather long and existing commitment to uh, the hydrogen development strategy. There have been a number of assets that have been acquired and developed um, across the region, whether that's Dubai and Abu Dhabi, but also in Oman and Saudi Arabia. So what you have in both the UK and the UAE markets, you have the infrastructure and the increased development in legislation, policy and guidelines around this area
1: very interesting simone i 'm going to come back to you particularly on that latter part in terms of legislation and the regulatory environment. man, just uh, bringing you in now, if I may. can you just build on what Simone mentioned, particularly around the sort of the global push now for hydrogen projects and how it 's playing out, and how you see the opportunities? in particular, the, the type of stakeholders you routinely work for. I'd be very interested to see how you think this plays out globally.
0: Thanks very much, Sachin, and um, hi, everyone. Great to be a guest on your podcast today. The humble hydrogen uh, gas has become quite uh, a hot topic in the energy transition and in the energy markets. It's not a new gas. It's been around for a while. It has been used and tested, but, of course, we've had some tragic incidents around that that kind of put a halt to that. Now, um, with the development of technology, the rush to, towards achieving various net zero targets around the world has seen hydrogen pop up again as a new technology ca- that can be exploited for uh, not just as, as, as a fuel, but also importantly for storage. And storage, of course, is a key element of building renewables to support reliability and uh, deal with the issues of intermittency. So across the world, we're seeing huge investments in the hydrogen markets, um, in particular concerning hydrogen production. Simone has touched on some of the examples in the UK. The UAE is positioning itself as a leading or intends to become a leading hydrogen producer. They, of course, are also going to be hosting COP28 this year. And we anticipate that they'll use the platform to really position and sell their hydrogen production capabilities. The UAE, Saudi Arabia, I'd say are the two big players in the market. We've seen reports of lots of agreements signed with the likes of Germany, the Netherlands and so on to produce or start producing um, hydrogen. Of course, linked to the production of hydrogen is sustainability, which really underpins all of the move to cleaner net zero future. Um, blue and green hydrogen, of course, are particularly in focus. Blue hydrogen, of course, relies on natural gas. There's so still an element of fossil fuel involved. And green energy, which of course is the ideal, will require 100 percent renewable energy to produce. The problem with that, of course, is cost. And whilst green hydrogen would be the ideal, there isn't really enough of it in production yet. The UAE, of course, is positioning itself strategically to take advantage of the development in technologies, the reduction in costs, to really take advantage of producing and exporting hydrogen. The key markets we see as potential um, export markets, of course, there's a number of them here in Asia, Japan, Korea, also have signed agreements with UAE for the importation of hydrogen. In due course, as far as projects go, um, and and sort of what I've seen from my vantage point, and it's still such a nascent market, so there's a lot of investment into technology, and and looking at how best hydrogen can serve our needs, whether by, you know, it's it's extensive use in the heavy industry. You know, we're going to need a lot of materials, lithium, iron, nickel, uh, for a lot of renewable energy projects. So the sources of energy to produce that, we, we think or we see hydrogen playing a key role there. The other issue, of course, with hydrogen is its transportation. It's a very, very light fuel. There are lots of issues and controversies around storing it and transporting it so what we will see is is more development in that market with respect to building pipeline infrastructure ships with the capacity to move um, hydrogen and its its overall viability and and ultimately economics so i haven't personally been involved in any um, hydrogen projects but i have seen elements of hydrogen crop up in for example the use of power plants a blend of fuels with an element of hydrogen and based on how well they perform, we expect to see ultimately plants and factories and systems running on 100% hydrogen.
1: man, just, just following up on that, is there a sense that the, the capital required in order to establish the infrastructure, the ships and the, the pipeline infrastructure you mentioned, does that ultimately become a too big a constraint or do you see that as just being a uh, part of the, the the challenge that can be overcome in terms of how hydrogen fits into the uh, energy transition equation?
0: Funding is is certainly a big element and it is going to require lots of, well so far we're seeing lots of government funding into research but I think you know lots of uh, capital from the private sector will be needed to really build the infrastructure that supports the hydrogen production in hydrogen network we're seeing of course more and more government grants being granted and also um, incentives to the private market to to encourage and incentivize building the infrastructure that will be needed tax exemptions etc and the like so it, it, it is an impediment and it will require a lot of capital to really kick off but with all the momentum around it the hope is that the funding will 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 funding gap will be
1: plugged. And, and, and on that point, Simone, just if you're able to shed some light on how government, perhaps government policy in the UK, plays a supporting role in this space, and man made the very clear point that it will require that kind of support. Can, can, can you suggest how governments are able to underpin the development of the hydrogen space, uh, maybe examples of legislation or policy uh, that helps to overcome
2: some of the challenges that Mayan mentioned? Sure, absolutely. So I think one statistic that I read was back during the pandemic, the European Union actually dedicated over 200 billion euro of its recovery fund to the energy transition campaign. So we talked about the increased and very high costs of supporting the the energy transition so i think that figure alone demonstrates that it's not going to be a cheap uh, investment with regards to specific policies that the governments are adopting so looking at the uk just some of the the actions that they've taken this year alone So they've launched, the UK government launched a scheme to verify sustainability of low carbon hydrogen. And this was with the intention of building transparency and confidence across the sector. So this was a certification scheme that they announced back in February of this year. At the same time, the UK Environment Agency published guidance on blue hydrogen, So Mayan mentioned the importance of the certification of both blue and green hydrogen. So we had guidance on the production of blue hydrogen and what would constitute um, appropriate certification requirements for blue hydrogen. More recently, the UK Department of Energy Security and Net Zero published a report on market engagement on the second hydrogen allocation round. And it called for views around the proposed design of hydrogen assets within the UK. And that was with plans to allocate funding to low carbon hydrogen projects by 2025. So in just the last six months, the UK government has demonstrated its commitment to the hydrogen sector through various initiatives, Similarly, the European Commission recently published two delegated acts which set out the rules on the EU definition of renewable hydrogen. So these acts will enter into force in July 23, and they define the conditions under which hydrogen-based fuels may be considered renewable fuels of non-biological origin, and outline a methodology for calculating life cycle greenhouse gas emissions. So this will help to provide regulatory certainty for investors. So we can see the increased commitment both by the UK government, by the European Commission on putting in place parameters around hydrogen and by beefing up the existing, one might say, light framework of, of guidance and regulation in this area to date.
1: Thanks, my fascinating and, and, and uh, very important points. I'm going to just pause for a second because I'll give you both a heads up that at the end of this podcast or just before, I'm going to ask you both the same question, which is what do you think would amount to a successful COP event this year here in the UAE? So I'll park that for a moment. Don't answer that now. I'll come back to that. just want to change topics, uh, but, but a question for both of you, if I may. We've had some fairly traumatic Events over the last few years, COVID and the Ukrainian conflict being uh, at the top of that list. I I just wanted to get a sense from both of you, people who work in this sector consistently. how, How do you see the impact of such colossal and traumatic events impacting the pace and the momentum of energy transition? Will that vary from region to region? And, and you know, you, you may not have the same views, of course, but do you see that as being a constraint or indeed an accelerator? I'll, I'll start with Mayan first, if I may.
0: Thanks, Sachin. Well, we could spend, of course, hours talking about the impact of the war on the energy transition, which, of course, was preceded by covid so it's been uh, quite a roller coaster bumpy ride for the energy markets uh, because, of course, COVID saw a complete downturn in, in economic activity and travel and so on. And so a drop in oil prices, which a lot of oil-dependent companies took a, a knock on. It also set back a lot of renewable energy projects because you know, uh, investment allocations had to be diverted towards dealing with the pandemic. And then just as we thought, There was some light at the end of the tunnel and we were coming out of COVID. We were hit by another big um, event in the form of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, Now, that really upended energy markets and really, I'd say, accelerate the move towards, of course, uh, a cleaner and, and, and more energy dependent world, but at the same time disrupting it So it was, uh, you know, I I see the energy transition as both, um, you know, energy in transition and in disruption and a bit of crisis. So the impact, of course, was colossal across the world um, in terms of our dependence, um, not just on on Russian gas, but the overall effect on, you know, the logistics uh, sector, on uh, the food sector and so on. Now, what we saw was a a lot of um, knee-jerk responses towards accelerating our our sort of various strategies towards the energy transition but a lot of challenges came with that I recall being in the middle of a number of energy storage projects at that time and we found ourselves in a position unable to give quotes or offers for, for for new deals because of the volatility in pricing for nickel and for lithium a lot of that you know not not You know, many people in the world know that, but a lot of that material came from Russia. So there was, of course, a lot more demand for those materials from other parts of the world. That demand created, you know, uh, up to a 500% spike in prices, and it really set back a lot of uh, renewable energy projects. And in many parts of the world, as we know, a fallback onto um, fossil fuels. Whether it was sort of coal plants being switched back on, or as we have seen, a high demand in oil and gas. And, and of course, we've seen the reports from um, some of the oil majors on the profits that they made during that time, as a result of you know just trying to keep the lights on across the world.
1: Yes, I mean, and, and I, Simone, I think just if you could build on that as to whether you see that being, you know, t- almost temporary in nature, and, and actually the the direction of travel is very much as as we would anticipate and, and wish for. H- how do you see the, the the trauma of the last few years having an impact on the momentum of energy transition? Sure.
2: So I think the. Adverse impact on the economy, on the global economy that the pandemic had necessarily had to slow the energy transition, because, as we mentioned, there's such a large cost involved with the energy transition that governments that had already pledged funding towards new projects, simply couldn't meet the financial demands that were required of them. So I think there was some slowing down of the energy transition as a result of the pandemic. However, as previously mentioned, there was a significant investment um, that the EU stuck by, the, the over 200 billion figure, which it committed as part of its recovery plan. As Mayan said, we we went from the pandemic to the Ukraine war, And a lot of effort prior to that was already being done to reduce our dependency on Russian fossil fuels. I think the Ukraine war accelerated those efforts. We saw in Germany, for example, rapid increase in development of LNG projects. In the UK, we saw as a result of the hefty sanctions program which i'm sure listeners will have heard about on a number of other podcasts that we have we have produced decrease in reliance on russian sourced um gas fossil fuels and so an increase in investment into projects in the uk so i think whilst these projects take time and we would like to think that we can we can source our own alternative fuels first thing tomorrow morning. Unfortunately, that's not possible. We're hearing timetable-wise governments saying that they anticipate projects going live in the next five to ten years. I think it's jurisdiction dependent on whether the existing infrastructure is fit for purpose um, for products like hydrogen. So looking at the UK specifically, a lot of the existing gas framework and assets, natural gas framework and assets will be used for hydrogen. However, that's not always fit for purpose. We will necessarily have to build new infrastructure that's dedicated to hydrogen. So these things will take time. And whilst I think the setbacks caused by the pandemic and the war are broadly speaking financial, I think there is an ongoing commitment by the governments to ensure that they meet the targets that they set for themselves prior to both the war and the pandemic.
1: Thanks, man. That's, that's um, very, very helpful. We'll go maybe from from the macro finally to uh, a little bit of your day jobs. You're both uh, excellent senior lawyers, and I'm, I'm just interested if we sort of drill down a little bit uh, as we come to the end of this uh, session, man. I just wanted to pick up with you in terms of. You know, from your role as you know, a very senior in-house a lawyer and advisor to the boards of, of both your own businesses and, and elsewhere, what, what are the challenges that you find that the transition to renewables brings with the way project documentation, contractual arrangements are set up and addressed? And, and you know, have you seen the, you know, a wholesale change? Uh, in that area? Or are we sort of at the cusp of, of redefining the way agreements address the, the issues that come with this new approach?
0: Thanks, Sachin. I think we are definitely at the cusp of uh, reinventing, recreating, and really shaping the documentation around a lot of the new renewable energy projects that we see. You know, I worked a long time in shipping. and And, of course, you know, your firm has a strong shipping practice, and we've had this long-standing body of templates, uh, great templates from your, you know, your ship voice, your sale forms, and 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 you know BP voice and so on, and templates that that really supported various aspects of shipping. I've also worked in, of course, construction where you have FIDIC and you have the FIDIC templates and guidance and so on, and now we're seeing new technologies emerge new developments in the renewable energy space and not quite the standardized level of templates as we've had for some of the um, longer standing industries so i think there's really an opportunity to shape the markets shape the templates clauses that we see and really anticipate and plan for some of the changes we will see in our contracting there's going to be and we are seeing a lot more focus on on climate issues on delivering projects with, you know, net zero or low carbon emissions um, and meeting various undertakings. Uh, We're seeing the same from our financiers, you know, uh, asking for environmental surveys and so on for projects that we're developing. So there's, there's a lot to cater for a lot of the challenges or some of the challenges we are seeing are to do with, you know, grid compliance. We have a lot of ageing infrastructure across the world um, that isn't quite fit for um, some of the new renewable energy projects that we're seeing coming on board. That that raises a lot of contractual issues and a lot of risks on providing plants and renewable energy projects that are grid compliant. So as, as uh, we're in the nascency of of you know dealing with the new technologies that come on board very soon, I think we'll see more and more hydrogen projects. I think there's a real opportunity for um, you know the legal experts amongst us to really start developing some standard documentation and contracting guidance around some of the new technologies and challenges that we're seeing.
1: Thanks, Man, and and also thanks for the plug for our shipping team. They will be delighted with that. Simone, just just sort of a. Building on that, and, and particularly the the point in how ESG conditions and approaches are, are sort of finding their way into contractual arrangements, be quite interested if you could give us a steer on not just what are some of the key clauses that you're seeing being debated now, but also potentially what what sort of practical tips you would give in house lawyers on on drafting or or, or taking into consideration. The, the sort of ESG considerations that uh, that are now uh, very much uh, on, on the table?
2: Yes, so the ESG considerations don't stop within the contract itself because ESG clauses likely will refer to a number of ancillary documents such as codes of conduct, policies or guidelines. Now, the first question to ask uh, yourself is, Are those documents going to be annexed to the to the contract? Are they just simply going to be referenced and a copy shown to the counterparty? It's imperative to check that the documents so those ancillary documents say what you think they should be saying and they reflect the representations the ESG related representations and warranties that you're giving in the contract. So I think the contract review, as well as the review of the ancillary documents, is tremendously important. Of course, we've heard that there has already been ESG-related litigation in connection with things like greenwashing, again, a topic that we've discussed in, in previous previous podcasts and client alerts, um, so I won't go into it in more detail here. But the important thing to note is that companies don't overstate their green credentials, again, whether in the contract or the ancillary documents. Again, the ESG clauses need to be tailored for the company. They need to be tailored for the business that you are undertaking. They need to be tailored for the jurisdiction. So I think we're very far off from developing a standard set of ESG clauses that are going to be fit for purpose regardless of the business that you're operating in. I think at the moment, we need to look at tailoring those clauses to each contract that we're looking at. And again, those clauses will depend on whether you are a bank, whether you are a utility, whether you are a trading house. So whilst I absolutely agree that there is scope for for us within the legal field to, to move this forward, to develop a framework, I think when quite far off developing an industry standard set of clauses. Looking specifically at the hydrogen sector that we've been discussing, I think we are still very much, as has been said, um, in the early stages of this market. But I think the market will be well served by the creation of an industry set of terms um, whether that's on the trading side of hydrogen, whether that's um, on the shipping side of it, whether that's on the project development side. So I think there are opportunities within this market to develop industry standard clauses, and that can only help with the positive development of this market.
1: Thanks, Simone. And, and uh, Mayhem, before that, OK, I, I, I said I would ask you about COP28, which I am going to do. You have no more than 60 seconds to tell me uh, whether it's a, a personal point of view, or indeed a professional one, as as to what you would deem to be a successful outcome from later this year here in the UAE. I'll start from my end.
0: I'll try to keep it to 60 seconds. I I was recently in a debate over whether climate change or AI was one of the biggest threats to um, the world. And of course, with no climate, there'll be no place for AI. So climate change remains, in my view, at the forefront of the challenges that we have. Now, we apparently are on track for um, the world getting hotter by 1.5 degrees Celsius by 2030. 2030 is also the timeline by which a lot of countries have made commitments to reduce their global house emissions. So it's a successful COP28, I hope will bring you know both the, the, the rich countries, the poor countries, the high emitters, the low emitters to the table, and not only committing to achieving these goals by 2030, but actually showing some progress on all the promises that have been made in the recent cop meetings we've had in the last few years thank you simon so
2: it's difficult not to agree word for word with with mine i think it would be uh, a successful cop is one where we have outcomes that are adhered to um, and real actions are taken and it's not simply a case of repeating what we've heard in the last two very successful cop meetings Uh, in Glasgow and, and in Egypt last year, I think decisive action and steps taken unanimously will demonstrate a successful outcome. In the previous COP meetings, I don't think we have had that unanimous approach to the key policies and issues that have been discussed. So I think if we can get to a stage where we have unanimity across all of the cop members then that will be a sign of a very successful meeting
1: well thank you both very, very much and mayan of gurin energy simone of reed smith thank you so much for your inputs on this session uh, both uh, illuminating clear and really enjoyable so um thank you for your time and thank you for the listeners and i hope you'll be able to join us again for a reed smith energy explored session on a further occasion thank you very much Energy Explored is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Allie McCardle. For more information about Reed Smith's energy and natural resources practice, please email energyexplored at readsmith.com. You can find our podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and reedsmith.com. And our social media accounts at Reed Smith LLP on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter.